0: Before I start, let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here today, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide our thoughts and minds and our hearts to incline them towards your word. We thank you for uh, giving us your word, uh, that we may be able to uh, examine it, read it, and have it influence the way we live. And we pray that it would do that today as we open it. Amen. It was great to be here. on this warm June day. It's a bit warmer today than it was yesterday, that's for sure. We're looking through the story of uh, Samu- uh, Samuel, David and Saul and uh, we're, we're going through the books of, of Samuel and we've come to a point now um, where David uh, is in uh, a bit of a pickle. He's running away from Saul. What does it mean for us to trust in God's future plan for the world. What does it mean for us to trust in God's future plan for the world? What does the future hold for you? Have you ever thought about that? What does the future hold? I was talking to Ian earlier, he's looking to retire perhaps in three years time, I hope you've talked to Jenny about that, Um, yeah, I retired last year. Um, But still my future is not certain, neither is yours. What will it look like? Have you made plans, um, are they robust enough do you think to take account of all the variables that the world throws up at us? Uncertainty about the future is something that we all think about from time to time, especially when unpredictable things happen like interest rates rising, um, health issues, world peace, the war in the Ukraine and in places elsewhere. What about financial insecurity, unsecurity about our freedom? in the future we can't be certain about what will happen next year we can't be certain about what will happen next month let alone tomorrow what will happen tomorrow and how can we live in such uncertain times how can we live with all this uncertainty that's around us what's in store for us well as Christians the big question for us is do we trust God enough To guide our future? Do we trust in God enough for him to guide us in our future? In the books of Samuel we chart the journeys of men who respond to God and respond to his plan for his people in quite different ways. In today's passage we read about three of those men. We read about Saul, Jonathan and David. Saul and David were both chosen by God to be kings of Israel, to rule them under God. Jonathan, Saul's son, is faced with a dilemma. Does he stick by his father as the next in line for the throne, or does he acknowledge God's anointed, David? We're in a period of history um, with the people of Israel where there's an overlap between kingships. On the one hand, Saul is currently the ruling king, even though he ought not to be. And on the other hand, David, is the who should be the ruling king, isn't king yet. Only a few people recognise David as the rightful king. This is a very similar situation in which Jesus found himself as he began his own ministry. David and Saul are following different life choices that will lead them to different outcomes. Then there is Jonathan, who is one of the few who recognise that God has chosen David as king, yet he also recognises that the fulfilment of this will be in God's timing. In the meantime, he remains with his father, I think out of respect to God. Now, we're going to look at this passage under four headings, and they'll be put up on the screen. The headings will be, David puts his future in God's hands. Saul shapes his future with his own hands. Jonathan puts his future in David's hands. And the real question at the end for us is, in whose hands will we entrust our future? Let's look at the first point. David puts his future in God's hands. We read in verses 1 to 6 that David is told that the Philistines were oppressing the town of Kilo. The Philistines were, were fighting against the town. They were looting the threshing floors. That's not a term we use very often, is it, today? Looting the threshing floors? It's a serious situation We understand fighting. After all, the current conflict in the Ukraine, we receive reports of property damage and looting of machinery and other sorts of items. But what is this other serious action, looting the threshing floors? Well, remember, Israel was an agricultural society. Um, In the ancient Near East, there were a lot of these uh, places that were reliant on agriculture. Grain was a highly valued commodity. Grain that reached the threshing floor was at the end of a lengthy process of labour-intensive cultivation and harvesting. And if people were looting the threshing floor, it was a particularly effective means of weakening the adversary because it had gone through all these processes. So they'd expended a lot of labour in uh, producing the grain. And here they were, the Philistines, looting the grain, which was their livelihood and indeed their food. But why did David want to go and help Kilo? It wasn't even his hometown. Just as he did when he heard the taunts of Goliath, David sees God being dishonoured and his people threatened. So he springs into action. But he doesn't do a Schwarzenegger. He doesn't do a Sylvester Stallone. He doesn't do a Jean-Claude van Damme, go charging in and guns blazing and whatever. He does one better. He inquires of the Lord as to what action he should take, if any. Verse 2, shall I go and attack the Philistines, he asks. David's men, on hearing of David's intentions, question his decision. They're afraid that they'd be soundly defeated by all these warriors Uh, battle-hardened men of the Philistine army. Besides, they reasoned, David had a few problems of his own to deal with. He was running away from Saul, who was hell-bent on killing him. He only had a small army of inexperienced men, a fugitive priest, and some food he was given by a priest who was now dead. Oh, he had Goliath's sword as well. Now, to deal with the disbelief of the men, David inquired again of the Lord, not because he didn't accept the first instruction, but this time it was to demonstrate to his men that he was getting his instructions direct from God, because David knew where the power resided, and it wasn't in the minds and strength of men. David had access to the mighty, powerful, and all-knowing God, and he called upon God to guide his actions. As a man after God's own heart, he wanted to hear what God had to say. He wanted to be led by what God said, not by what men said. Well, he gets the go-ahead from God, and even though his troops are somewhat reluctant, they go into battle. They inflict heavy losses on the Philistine army and carry off their livestock. As an ancestor of Jesus, David demonstrates the character and union that he has with God in a way that he fulfils his role. David's heart is in the right place with God and he does nothing without first praying and asking God to direct him. Fast forward about a thousand years and we find Jesus of Nazareth, the perfect descendant of David, who was also utterly committed to the will of God. In John 4.34 we read, as Jesus tells his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In John 6.38, Jesus says to his disciples, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus was committed to saving his people in obedience, whatever the cost. His purpose in coming was to save his people from their sin. And to do this, he fully entrusted his life to his Father. For this was the only way that he could save them. And it wasn't his will, but God's will that he submitted to. So David put his future in God's hands. And now we shall see Saul who shapes his future with his own hands. We read in chapters 9 and 10 that anointed—sorry, Samuel anointed Saul to be king under God with a clear set of responsibilities. And we can read those in Deuteronomy. Initially, Saul did what was required in obedience to God's instructions. But it was only when he decided that he was going to follow his own instincts, that things started to go pear-shaped. As he went on his way, he found himself further and further from God until God instructed Samuel in 1 Samuel 15 to inform Saul that he had overstepped the mark, that he, God, had rejected him as king over Israel. Saul's kingly power, his self respect, his responsibility to guard Israel from her enemies began to crumble. He was becoming a shell of his former self. From being obedient to God, he went to following his own will. He abrogated his responsibilities as king. He failed to protect Israel and was now treating his most loyal subject, David, as a criminal. Saul was slipping away. He was losing a grip not only on his power and authority, but on his sanity. Allegiances to Saul as king turned to fear in the hearts and minds of the people of the towns round about. Even though David had rescued the people of Keilah from the Philistines, they had no hesitation in revealing his whereabouts to Saul. They obviously feared that the same fate could befall them as befell Nob if they were not seen to show allegiance to Saul. The town of Ziph goes one better giving Saul the exact location of David almost in the minute detail. The general location, that is the strongholds of Horish, the actual hill where David was hiding, the hill of Hakalah, and his location south of Jeshimon. Who needs GPS? when you've got the town of Ziph. The people of Kelar and Ziph knew exactly what Saul would do when he found David. They were more interested in saving their own skins than aligning with David. Besides, Saul was unpredictable in what he might do if he thought that they were keeping information about David from him. Saul's blind desire to kill David became the dominant force driving his future actions. Without God, Saul had become a fearful, frightened, almost paranoid individual. He was boxing at shadows, certainly seeking reassure, constantly seeking reassurance as to the loyalty of his followers and destroying anyone whom he saw as a direct threat. Sadly, every now and again he uses the name of the Lord to validate his actions in some bizarre sort of way. In verse 7 we see Saul saying, God has delivered David into my hands. Here he's imagining that God has delivered David into his hands. Verse 21, the Lord bless you for your concern for me, he says to the people. He's delusional, isn't he? The expectation that God has delivered David into his hands and that the Lord has a concern for him. There's something sad and terrible about someone who thinks in that way because Saul's interest wasn't in God at all. It was in his own evil pursuits and you can't get a clearer indication that Saul had rejected any association with God than when he ordered the execution of the 85 priests in the town of Nob. It's a bit like removing anyone in your way who gives you the answers that you don't want to hear, answers that you find unacceptable. In what way do people today respond to Jesus in the way that Saul responded to David, you say? Are some people outright, well, some people are outright defiant and so angry that they will try everything in their power to bring down the name of Jesus? We live in an age that seems to be moving away from God. One Australian Christian commentator suggests that since the six, 1960s, societies like our own, have pursued a moral outlook whereby the rules of life are thrown out in favour of personal autonomy and self-expression about me, not about the collective community. People are looking within themselves for answers to the questions about how to live their lives. They're trying to fashion a world that bends to their idea of what it should be, a world where. Where those with a voice and power want to impose their views on the populace in the name of progress. Instead of order, there's disorder. Instead of peace, there is war. Instead of harmony, there's disunity. They're making a right proper mess, just like Saul was. We're so focused on ourselves that we've stopped thinking of others, and more importantly, we've stopped listening to God. This kind of action is easy to see in our world but there's also a more subtle way in which people respond to Jesus in our day and age which has much the same disruptive effect. Some people outwardly seem to be followers of Jesus but only when it's appropriate to do so. Some are what I shall term closet Christians who feel safe in being identified as such when there are other Christians around but quickly to go along with the crowd when they're away from their church gatherings. And sadly, there are leaders in churches who are not immune to following this type of behaviour, making all the right noises when the followers uh, when with followers, yet leading a life of deceit and denial outside. The effect overall is much the same, because God is not being honoured. The fundamental difference between Saul and David was that God spoke to David, and David listened and did what God said. However, God no longer spoke to Saul, nor did Saul seek God's direction. Saul was his own man and did what he saw, fitted his own agenda. The contrast is like cheese and chalk. When we follow God like David did, we have a lamp for our feet to know where to place the next step, and a light for our path so that we know in which direction to travel. For Saul, his lamp had been extinguished, so he didn't know where to step, and he could no longer see where he was going. We've seen how David relies upon God and places his future in God's hands. We've just looked at how Saul shapes his future with his own hands. Now we're going to look at Jonathan, and how he puts his future in David's hands. You remember Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, was a brave, loyal and natural leader. He was the closest friend that David ever had. Jonathan depended on God and so he was able to recognise David as God's anointed king. Of all the people, Jonathan could have rightly claimed the kingship as being the firstborn son of Saul, yet we did read earlier in Samuel that he willingly and joyfully submitted himself to God's king, God's anointed king, David. And even though he recognised God, uh, David as God's chosen king, he remained by his father's side out of loyalty to the fact that he was still the king. Jonathan's relationships were first and foremost determined in obedience to God's will. Because of this, Jonathan worked a difficult, sometimes treacherous path between his allegiance to David on the one hand and his responsibilities to Saul on the other. As David was fleeing for his life, he found some respite in the wilderness of Ziph. Now, Ziph was at the edge of a wilderness area and it was in no way a five-star resort. David's circumstances at that particular point of time were depressing. Would there be no end to the relentless pursuit? Would there be no end to Saul's obsessive hatred? David had been a faithful servant of the king. There would seem no way that this would end well. While Saul was having no end of trouble locating David, someone else seemed to have no trouble finding him. Verse 16, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose... Went to David at Horath. How easy was that? He had no trouble. Was this a coincidence, do you think? Well, I don't think in any way was it coincidental when you know that God was in overall control of the whole situation. God had a specific job for Jonathan to do in his relationship with David. We read that he was sent to David to help him find strength in God. Verse 16. How did he do that? Verse 17. Verse 17. Don't be afraid, he said to to David. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father knows this. How often in the Bible do we hear the words, don't be afraid, or do not fear? And they're usually spoken in circumstances that are desperate, life-threatening, terrifying. They're not empty words, they are an expression of a reality that is more powerful than fear, more certain than desperate, more calming than terrifying. They are the words of godly assurance, promises from the creator and sustainer of life itself. Here is God using his servant Jonathan to remind and encourage his servant David of the big picture of God's will that David will be king over Israel and that Saul knows about it. Of all people, Jonathan could have rightly claimed the kingship as the firstborn son, yet he willingly and joyfully submitted to David. When life gets tough for us, when we're overwhelmed by the fears and uncertainties of life, we also need to be reassured of God's promises. We need to get our current situations into a wider perspective, whilst the pain and suffering is real, it drains us, sometimes overcomes us, we do know that there's a greater plan for us. And it's at these times that we need to both remind ourselves and encourage others with the truth of the Gospel. And who better to remind and encourage us but our Christian brothers and sisters, just like Jonathan did for David. Jonathan's encouragement not only points to the future, towards the eternal outcome, but he also provides a concrete reminder that God is with him in the here and now. And we're able to do likewise for others. Like Jonathan, we'll be encouraged to hear that God is with us through thick and thin, that his promises hold true, whatever the circumstance. When we're presented with opportunities to encourage each other, we should take them reach out to each other in the spirit of love and concern. Like Jonathan, God may have placed us to be the right person in the right place at the right time, to remind, to encourage, to support those around us of the unfailing promises of God. Do you know of someone who could do with a godly dose of encouragement? I do. Make it a point to approach them and with God's help Reassure them that God's promises are both true for the future and also for the here and now. God knows what they're going through and he's there for them as you are there for them. David put his hands in his future in God's hands. Saul tried to shape his future with his own. Jonathan sided with David and placed his future in David's hands question for us is now, in whose hands will we place our future? Well, we've talked a little bit about that as we've been going through the passage. What is our response to God's plan for our future? Will it be like David? Will it be like Saul? Or will it be like Jonathan? While we live our lives with God at the centre, like David and Jonathan did, or will we live our lives knowing about God but then push him to one side when he gets in the way of what we want to do? David had a heart that yearned for God. He sought God's honour and glory over everything else and accepted his direction in his life. Jonathan similarly recognized God's hand in David's life and he committed himself to honoring God by submitting himself to David's rule he understood the difficulties that this allegiance would bring he knew that the path he was taking wouldn't be easy when we place our future in the hands of Jesus we have two guarantees first guarantee is that it will be a hard slog it's not easy there'll be times when we will be persecuted There'll be times when we'll be ostracised, ridiculed, perhaps even criminalised. Scripture tells us that this is inevitable. And just like David, we may even experience the wrath of authority. And there are Christians facing this in Victoria today, just south of the border. It's close to home. The second guarantee is that God will always be with us. Through all the trials and tribulations, through the storms and the hatred, God is there with us. He's promised to give us the strength to endure, and in the end, he will welcome us to his eternal kingdom. Now, that's the best guarantee I've ever heard of. And it comes from the best source that I can ever imagine. What a wonderful promise for both the present and the future, for us to hold on to in the midst of the uncertainties that we face in life. I think Paul sums it up really well in 2 Corinthians 4. He says of himself and of those who follow Jesus, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement that your word brings. We thank you for the reality check that it gives us. We thank you for each other and we pray that we may be able to fulfil our responsibilities as Christians to not only remember your hand in our life, but also to be a support and an encouragement to each other as we go through the difficulties of living in this world and together looking forward to the eternal future that you have promised. This we ask in his name, Amen. Thank you.